Section 7 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. Our National Parks by John Muir. Section 7. This unrivaled forest is still further enriched by two majestic silver firs, Abies magnifica and Abies concolor, bands of which come down from the main fir belt by cool shady ridges and glens. Abies magnifica is the noblest of its race, growing on moraines at an elevation of 7,000 to 8,500 feet above the sea to a height of 200 or 250 feet and five to seven in diameter and with these noble dimensions there is a richness and symmetry and perfection of finish not to be found in any other tree in the sierra the branches are whorled in fives mostly and stand out from the straight red purple bowl in level or on old trees in drooping collars every branch regularly pinnated like fern fronds and clad with silvery needles making broad plumes singularly rich and sumptuous the flowers are in their prime about the middle of june the staminate red growing on the underside of the branchlets in crowded profusion giving a rich color to nearly all the tree the pistillate greenish yellow tinged with pink standing erect on the upper side of the topmost branches while the tufts of young leaves about as brightly colored as those of the douglas spruce push out their fragrant brown buds a few weeks later making another grand show the cones mature in a single season from the flowers when full grown they are about six to eight inches long three or four in diameter blunt massive cylindrical greenish-gray in color covered with a fine silvery down and beaded with transparent balsam very rich and precious looking standing erect like casks on the topmost branches if possible the inside of the cone is still more beautiful the scales and bracts are tinged with red and the seed wings are purple with bright iridescence abies concolor the white silver fir grows best about two thousand feet lower than the magnifica it is nearly as large but the branches are less regularly pinnated and whorled the leaves are longer and instead of standing out around the branchlets or turning up and clasping them they are mostly arranged in two horizontal or ascending rows and the cones are less than half as large the bark of the magnifica is reddish purple and closely furrowed that of the concolor is gray and widely furrowed a noble pair rivaled only by the abies grandis amabilis and nobilis of the forests of oregon washington and the northern california coast range but none of these northern species form pure forests that in extent and beauty approach those of the sierra the seeds of the conifers are curiously formed and colored white brown purple plain or spotted like birds eggs and expecting the juniper they are all handsomely and ingeniously winged with reference to their distribution they are a sort of cunningly devised flying machines one-winged birds 
birds with but one feather, and they take but one flight, all save those which, after flying from the cone nest in calm weather, chance to alight on branches where they have to wait for a wind. And though these seed wings are intended for only a moment's use, they are as thoughtfully colored and fashioned as the wings of birds, and require from one to two seasons to grow. Those of the pine, fir, hemlock, and spruce are curved in such a manner that, in being dragged through the air by the seeds, they are made to revolve, whirling the seeds in a close spiral and sustaining them long enough to allow the winds to carry them to considerable distances. A style of flying full of quick, merry motion, strikingly contrasted to the sober, dignified sailing of seeds on tufts of feathery pappas. Surely no merrier adventurers ever set out to seek their fortunes. Only in the fir woods are large flocks seen, for unlike the cones of the pine, spruce, hemlock, etc., which let the seeds escape slowly one or two at a time by spreading the scales, the fir cones, when ripe, fall to pieces and let nearly all go at once in favorable weather. All along the Sierra, for hundreds of miles, on dry, breezy autumn days, the sunny spaces in the woods among the colossal spires are in a whirl with these shining, purple-winged wanderers. Notwithstanding, the harvesting squirrels have been working at the top of their speed for weeks, trying to cut off every cone before the seeds were ready to swarm and fly. Sequoia seeds have flat wings, and glint and glance in their flight like a boy's kite. The dispersal of juniper seeds is affected by the plum and cherry plan of hiring birds at the cost of their board, and thus obtaining the use of a pair of extra good wings. Above the great fir belt, and below the ragged beds and fringes of the dwarf pine, stretch the broad dark forests of Pinus contorta, varietal muriana, usually called tamarack pine. On broad fields of moraine material, it forms nearly pure forests at an elevation of about eight or 9,000 feet above the sea, where it is a small, well-proportioned tree, 50 or 60 feet high and one or two in diameter, with a thin gray bark, crooked, much divided, straggling branches, short needles in clusters of two, bright yellow and crimson flowers, and small prickly cones. The very largest I ever measured was 90 feet in height and a little over 6 feet in diameter, 4 feet above the ground. On moist, well-drained soil in sheltered hollows along stream sides, it grows tall and slender with ascending branches, making graceful arrowy spires 50 to 75 feet high, with stems only 5 or 6 inches thick. The most extensive forest of this pine in the park lies to the north of the Big Tuolumne Meadows, a famous deer pasture and hunting ground of the Mono Indians. For miles over wide moraine beds there is an even, nearly pure growth, broken only by glacier meadows, around which the trees stand in trim array, their sharp spires showing to fine advantage both in green flowery summer and white winter. 
on account of the closeness of its growth in many places and the thinness and gumminess of its bark it is easily killed by running fires which work widespread destruction in its ranks but a new generation rises quickly from the ashes for all or a part of its seeds are held in reserve for a year or two or many years and when the tree is killed the cones open and the seeds are scattered over the burned ground like those of the attenuata next to the mountain hemlock and dwarf pine this species best endures burial in heavy snow while in braving hunger and cold on rocky ridge tops it is not surpassed by any it is distributed from alaska to southern california and inland across the rocky mountains taking many forms in accordance with demands of climate soils rivals and enemies growing patiently in bogs and on sand dunes beside the sea where it is pelted with salt scud on high snowy mountains and down in the throats of extinct volcanoes springing up with invincible vigor after every devastating fire and extending its conquests farther the sturdy storm-enduring red cedar juniperus occidentalis delights to dwell on tops of granite domes and ridges and glacier pavements of the upper pine belt at an elevation of seven to ten thousand feet where it can get plenty of sunshine and snow and elbow-room without encountering quick-growing overshadowing rivals they never make anything like a forest seldom come together even in groves but stand out separate and independent in the wind clinging by slight joints to the rock living chiefly on snow and thin air and maintaining tough health on this diet for two thousand years or more every feature and gesture expressing steadfast dogged endurance the largest are usually about six or eight feet in diameter and fifteen or twenty in height a very few are ten feet in diameter and on isolated moraine heaps forty to sixty feet in height many are mere stumps as broad as high broken by avalanches and lightning picturesquely tufted with dense gray scale-like foliage and giving no hint of dying the staminate flowers are like those of the levocedrus but smaller the pistillate are inconspicuous the wood is red fine-grained and fragrant the bark bright cinnamon and red and in thrifty trees is strikingly braided and reticulated flaking off in thin lustrous ribbons which the indians used to weave into matting and coarse cloth these brown unshakable pillars standing solitary on polished pavements with bossy masses of foliage in their arms are exceedingly picturesque and never fail to catch the eye of the artist they seem sole survivors of some ancient race wholly unacquainted with their neighbors i have spent a good deal of time trying to determine their age but on account of dry rot which honeycombs most of the old ones i never got a complete count of the largest some are undoubtedly more than two thousand years old for though on good moraine soil they grow about as fast as oaks on bare pavements and smoothly glaciated overswept granite ridges in the dome region 
they grow extremely slowly. One on the Star King Ridge, only 2 feet 11 inches in diameter, was 1140 years old. Another on the same ridge, only 1 foot 7.5 inches in diameter, had reached the age of 834 years. The first 15 inches from the bark of a medium-sized tree, 6 feet in diameter, on the North Tanaya pavement, had 859 layers of wood, or 57 to the inch. Beyond this, the count was stopped by dry rot and scars of old wounds. The largest I examined was 33 feet in girth, or nearly 10 in diameter, and though I failed to get anything like a complete count, I learned enough from this and many other specimens to convince me that most of the trees, 8 to 10 feet thick, standing on pavements, are more than 20 centuries of age rather than less. Barring accidents, for all I can see, they would live forever. When killed, they waste out of existence about as slowly as granite. Even when overthrown by avalanches, after standing so long, they refuse to lie at rest, leaning stubbornly on their big elbows as if anxious to rise, and while a single root holds to the rock, putting forth fresh leaves with a grim, never-say-die, and never-lie-down expression. As the juniper is the most stubborn and unshakable of trees, the mountain hemlock, Tsuga mertensiana, is the most graceful and pliant and sensitive, responding to the slightest touches of the wind. Until it reaches a height of fifty or sixty feet, it is sumptuously clothed, down to the ground with drooping branches, which are divided into countless delicate waving sprays, grouped and arranged in most indescribably beautiful ways, and profusely sprinkled with handsome brown cones. The flowers also are peculiarly beautiful and effective. The pistolate, very dark rich purple, the staminate, blue of so fine and pure a tone that the best azure of the high sky seems to be condensed in them. Though apparently the most delicate and feminine of all the mountain trees, it grows best where the snow lies deepest, at an elevation of from 9,000 to 9,500 feet, in hollows on the northern slopes of mountains and ridges. But under all circumstances and conditions of weather and soil, sheltered from the main currents of the winds or in blank exposure to them, well-fed or starved, it is always singularly graceful in habit. Even at its highest limit in the park, 10,500 feet above the sea on exposed ridge tops, where it crouches and huddles close together in low thickets like those of the dwarf pine, it still contrives to put forth its sprays and branches in forms of irrepressible beauty, while on moist, well-drained moraines it displays a perfectly tropical luxuriance of foliage, flower, and fruit. In the first winter storms, the snow is oftentimes soft and lodges in the dense leafy branches, pressing them down against the trunk and the slender drooping axis bends lower and lower as the load increases until the top touches the ground and an ornamental arch is made 
then as storm succeeds storm and snow is heaped on snow the whole tree is at last buried not again to see the light or move leaf or limb until set free by the spring thaws in june or july not the young saplings only are thus carefully covered and put to sleep in the whitest of white beds for five or six months of the year but trees thirty and forty feet high from april to may then the snow is compacted you may ride over the prostrate groves without seeing a single branch or leaf of them in the autumn they are full of merry life when clark crows squirrels and chipmunks are gathering the abundant crop of seeds while the deer rest beneath the thick concealing branches the finest grove in the park is near mount conus and the trail from the tuolumne soda springs to the mountain runs through it many of the trees in this grove are three to four or five feet in diameter and about a hundred feet high the mountain hemlock is widely distributed from near the south extremity of the high sierra northward along the cascade mountains of oregon and washington and the coast ranges of british columbia to alaska where it was first discovered in eighteen twenty seven its northmost limit so far as i have observed is in the icy fjords of prince william's sound in latitude sixty one degrees where it forms pure forests at the level of the sea growing tall and majestic on the banks of the great glaciers waving in accord with the mountain winds and the thunder of the falling icebergs here as in the sierra it is ineffably beautiful the very loveliest evergreen in america of the round-headed decotyledonous trees in the park the most influential are the black and gold cup oaks they occur in some parts of the main forest belt scattered among the big pines like a heavier chaparral but form extensive groves and reach perfect development only in the yosemite valleys and flats of the main canyons the california black oak quercus californica is one of the largest and most beautiful of the western oaks attaining under favorable conditions a height of sixty to a hundred feet with a trunk three to seven feet in diameter wide-spreading picturesque branches and smooth lively green foliage handsomely scalloped purple in the spring yellow and red in autumn it grows best in sunny open groves on ground covered with ferns chokecherry briar-rose rubus mints goldenrod etc few if any of the famous oak groves of europe however extensive surpass these in the size and strength and bright airy beauty of the trees the color and fragrance of the vegetation beneath them the quality of the light that fills their leafy arches and in the grandeur of the surrounding scenery the finest grove in the park is in one of the little yosemite valleys of the tuolumne canyon a few miles above hetch hetchy the mountain live oak or gold cup oak quercus chrysolepis forms extensive groves on earthquake and avalanche taluses and terraces in canyons and yosemite valleys from about three to five thousand feet above the sea in tough sturdy unwedgeable strength this is the oak of oaks 
in general appearance it resembles the great live oak of the southern states it has pale gray dark a short uneven heavily buttressed trunk which usually divides a few feet above the ground into strong wide-reaching limbs forming noble arches and ending in an intricate maze of small branches and sprays the outer ones frequently drooping in long tresses to the ground like those of the weeping willow covered with small simple polished leaves making a canopy broad and bossy on which the sunshine falls in glorious brightness the acorn cups are shallow thick-walled and covered with a yellow fuzzy dust the flowers appear in may and june with a profusion of pollened tresses followed by the bronze-colored young leaves no tree in the park is a better measure of altitude in canyons at an elevation of four thousand feet you may easily find a tree six or eight feet in diameter and at the head of a side canyon three thousand feet higher up which you can climb in less than two hours you find the knotty giant dwarfed to a slender shrub with leaves like those of huckleberry bushes still bearing acorns and seemingly contented forming dense patches of chaparral on the top of which you may make your bed and sleep softly like a highlander in heather about a thousand feet higher it is still smaller making fringes about a foot high around boulders and along seams in pavements and the brows of canyons giving handholds here and there on cliffs hard to climb the largest i have measured were from twenty-five to twenty-seven feet in girth fifty to sixty feet high and the spread of the limbs was about double the height the principal riverside trees are poplar alder willow broad-leafed maple and nuttall's flowering dogwood the poplar populus trichocarpa often called balm of gilead from the gum on its buds is a tall stately tree towering above its companions and gracefully embowering the banks of the main streams at an elevation of about four thousand feet its abundant foliage turns bright yellow in the fall and the indian summer sunshine sifts through it in delightful tones over the slow-gliding waters when they are at their lowest ebb the flowering dogwood is brighter still in these brooding days for every branch of its broad head is then a brilliant crimson flame in the spring when the streams are in flood it is the whitest of trees white as a snowbank with its magnificent flowers four to eight inches in width making a wonderful show and drawing swarms of moths and butterflies the broad-leafed maple is usually found in the coolest boulder-choked canyons where the streams are gray and white with foam over which it spreads its branches in beautiful arches from bank to bank forming leafy tunnels full of soft green light and spray favorite homes of the water ouzel around the glacier lakes two or three thousand feet higher the common aspen grows in fringing lines and groves which are brilliantly colored in autumn reminding you of the color glory of the eastern woods scattered here and there or in groves the botanist will find a few other trees mostly small the mountain mahogany cherry chestnut oak laurel and nutmeg 
The California nutmeg, Tumyan californicum, is a handsome evergreen belonging to the yew family with pale bark, prickly leaves, fruit like a green-gauge plum, and seed like a nutmeg. One of the best groves of it in the park is at the Cascades below Yosemite. But the noble oaks and all these rock-shading, stream-embowering trees are as nothing amid the vast, abounding, billowy forests of conifers. During my first years in the Sierra, I was ever calling on everybody within reach to admire them, but I found no one half warm enough until Emerson came. I had read his essays and felt sure that of all men he would best interpret the sayings of these noble mountains and trees. Nor was my faith weakened when I met him in Yosemite. He seemed as serene as a sequoia, his head in the Empyrean, and forgetting his age, plans, duties, ties of every sort, I proposed an immeasurable camping trip back in the heart of the mountains. He seemed anxious to go, but considerately mentioned his party. I said, never mind. The mountains are calling. Run away and let plans and parties and dragging lowland duties all gang tipsel-teary. We'll go up a canyon singing your own song. Goodbye, proud world. I'm going home in divine earnest. Up there lies a new heaven and a new earth. Let us go to the show. But alas, it was too late too near the sundown of his life. The shadows were growing long, and he leaned on his friends. His party, full of indoor philosophy, failed to see the natural beauty and fullness of promise of my wild plan, and laughed at it in good-natured ignorance, as if it were necessarily amusing to imagine that Boston people might be led to accept Sierra manifestations of God at the price of rough camping. Anyhow, they would have none of it, and held Mr. Emerson to the hotels and trails. After spending only five tourist days in Yosemite, he was led away, but I saw him two days more, for I was kindly invited to go with the party as far as the Mariposa Big Trees. I told Mr. Emerson that I would gladly go to the Sequoias with him if he would camp in the grove. He consented heartily, and I felt sure that we would have had at least one good, wild, memorable night around a sequoia campfire. Next day we rode through the magnificent forests of the Merced Basin, and I kept calling his attention to the sugar pines, quoting his wood notes, Come listen what the pine tree saith, etc., pointing out the noblest as kings and high priests and most eloquent and commanding preachers of all the mountain forests, stretching forth their century-old arms in benediction over the worshipping congregations crowded about them. He gazed in devout admiration, saying but little, while his fine smile faded away. Early in the afternoon, when we reached Clark's station, I was surprised to see the party dismount. And when I asked if we were not going up into the grove to camp, they said, No, it would never do to lie out in the night air. Mr. Emerson might take cold, and you know, Mr. Muir, that would be a dreadful thing. 
In vain I urged that only in homes and hotels were colds caught, that nobody ever was known to take cold camping in these woods, that there was not a single cough or sneeze in all the Sierra. Then I pictured the big climate-changing, inspiring fire I would make, praised the beauty and fragrance of sequoia flame, told how the great trees would stand about us transfigured in the purple light while the stars looked down between the great domes, ending by urging them to come on and make an immortal Emerson night of it. But the house habit was not to be overcome, nor the strange dread of pure night air, though it is only cool day air with a little dew in it. So the carpet dust and unknowable reeks were preferred, and to think of this being a Boston choice, sad commentary on culture and the glorious transcendentalism. Accustomed to reach whatever place I started for, I was going up the mountain alone to camp and wait the coming of the party next day, but since Emerson was so soon to vanish, I concluded to stop with him. He hardly spoke a word all evening, yet it was a great pleasure simply to be near him, warming in the light of his face as at a fire. In the morning we rode up the trail through a noble forest of pine and fir into the famous Mariposa Grove, and stayed an hour or two, mostly in ordinary tourist fashion, looking at the biggest giants, measuring them with a tape line, riding through prostrate fireboard trunks, etc., though Mr. Emerson was alone occasionally, sauntering about as if under a spell. As we walked through a fine group, he quoted, There were giants in those days, recognizing the antiquity of the race. To commemorate his visit, Mr. Galen Clark, the guardian of the grove, selected the finest of the unnamed trees and requested him to give it a name. He named it Samoset, after the New England Sachem, as the best that occurred to him. The poor bit of measured time was soon spent, and while the saddles were being adjusted, I again urged Emerson to stay. You are yourself a sequoia, I said. Stop and get acquainted with your big brethren. But he was past his prime, and now as a child in the hands of his affectionate but sadly civilized friends, who seemed as full of old-fashioned conformity as of bold intellectual independence. It was the afternoon of the day and the afternoon of his life, and his course was now westward down all the mountains into sunset. The party mounted and rode away in wondrous contentment, apparently tracing the trail through ceanothus and dogwood bushes around the basis of the big trees, up the slope of the sequoia basin, and over the divide. I followed to the edge of the grove. Emerson lingered in the rear of the train, and when he reached the top of the ridge, after all the rest of the party were over and out of sight, he turned his horse, took off his hat, and waved me a last good-bye. I felt lonely, so sure I had been that Emerson, of all men, would be the quickest to see the mountains and sing them. Gazing a while on the spot where he vanished, I sauntered back into the heart of the grove, made a bed of sequoia plumes and ferns by the side of a stream, 
gathered a store of firewood, and then walked about until sundown. The birds, robins, thrushes, warblers, etc., that had kept out of sight, came about me now that all was quiet, and made cheer. After sundown, I built a great fire, and as usual, had it all to myself. And though lonesome for the first time in these forests, I quickly took heart again. The trees had not gone to Boston, nor the birds, and as I sat by the fire, Emerson was still with me in spirit, though I never saw him again in the flesh. He sent books and wrote, cheering me on, advising me not to stay too long in solitude. Soon he hoped that my guardian angel would intimate that my probation was at a close. Then I was to roll up my herbariums, sketches, and poems, though I never knew I had any poems, and come to his house, and when I tired of him and his humble surroundings, he would show me to better people. But there remained many a forest to wander through, many a mountain and glacier to cross, before I was to see his Wachusett and Monadnock, Boston, and Concord. It was seventeen years after our parting on the Wawona Ridge that I stood beside his grave under a pine tree on the hill above Sleepy Hollow. He had gone to higher Sierras and, as I fancied, was again waving his hand in friendly recognition. End of section 7